0: So we're going to take, uh, as we've just read out, verses 19 to um, 46, and uh, we're going to continue going uh, like chapter by chapter, um, section by section, um, probably until we get to the 10 commandments in chapter five, and we might break that down a bit. And then from then on, we'll, we'll probably um, take it theme by theme, which means we might um, skip over a few bits, uh, which will probably still take us like six months to go through at the very least. So it's going to be a long but glorious time. Uh, I've got a question for you, um, a very simple question. Do you believe that God is as good as he says he is? Do you actually believe that God is as good as he says he is? Do you believe that the gospel is as powerful as the Bible says it is. So if we were pressed right now, I'm sure probably all of us would say, well yes, of course Tom, of course I do. Uh, but sometimes I think our actions actually demonstrate something different to that. Um, they demonstrate something different to actually wholeheartedly believing that God is as good as he says he is and wholeheartedly believing that the gospel is as powerful as the Bible says it is. So imagine if uh, we were out to dinner and we were just having a nice casual conversation and um, you just asked me what I've been up to lately. And I said, oh, well, I've just been uh, dabbling in a bit of epidemiology and immunology just in my my side, my spare time. And I actually like stumbled across a um, vaccine for COVID and um, it just kind of popped in there. You know, I wasn't really... Um, trying too hard, but it just kind of fell into my hands. I had a contact who, um, had access to extensive testing. And so we actually tested this vaccine on a hundred thousand people. And it came back with a hundred percent efficacy. Uh, and, um, and he then had a friend who said, well, I could actually distribute this widely and at low cost. And, um, and so that's what I've been doing lately. And I've got this, um, yeah, this COVID vaccine, that's actually 100% effective. And if then, you know, months went on and I hadn't done anything about it, you would probably then think I'm either lying through my teeth or or perhaps I simply don't believe that what I had created was actually as powerful as I might have led on to be. I don't believe that um, it would actually cure 100% of people from getting COVID. And I think if we say we believe that the gospel is true, that there is a cure, there is a cure for the sickness of human hearts, if we say we believe that, then surely our actions would show that in some way, right? If we say we believe that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, that actually there is a cure, for this sickness, and it is found in the cross of Jesus Christ, then surely our actions would show that in some way. And there is certainly an element of the brokenness of this world, the fallenness of humanity that we slip into doubt. But I think often actually our actions in this life demonstrate that maybe we don't quite, believe wholeheartedly that the gospel is powerful, that the gospel is the power of God to bring people, lost people, to salvation. And as we read the story of the Israelites in the wilderness that we'll go through today, I think we see moments where really the people of Israel probably don't wholeheartedly believe that God is as good as he says he is. They don't quite believe that he has the power to provide for them. And so this passage today gives a bit of a recap of what happened uh, to the first generation of the people of Israel. So what happened when the first generation were brought out of Egypt and led through uh, the wilderness after receiving the commandments um, and toward the promised land. And Moses is now speaking to the second generation 40 years after that. And he's giving a recap of what has happened. So I'm just going to give a survey now of this this recap that Moses gives. And then what we'll do is focus on two of the key dangers or warnings that come out of this text. The danger of doubt and the self-centeredness of presumption that we see here. So from verse 19, uh, Moses is speaking um, to the people and explaining that the first generation, like we set out from Horeb, which is the area of Mount Sinai. So we set out from that place where God gave us the commandments and said, I'm going to plant you in this land flowing with milk and honey. And so Moses is saying, well, and I said to you, do not fear, do not be dismayed. You're going to take this promised land. You're going to follow uh, me into it. God is going to actually deliver it into our hands and it's going to be great. And so the people of Israel say, all right, sounds like a plan, Moses. What we want to do is set 12 spies, one from each tribe and head into the land and spy it out. And so they do that. And Moses says, yep, that seems good to me. You guys go ahead with that. And then the 12 spies see that it is a good land. They say, verse 25, wow, it is a good land the Lord our God is giving us. It is actually good. And if we read the original account in Numbers, they say, wow, this is an awesome land. It is flowing with milk and honey. It's a great land. But what they also see is that there are huge people there, Goliath-like people and the cities are fortified. And so they come back, the spies come back, and 10 of them start spreading a bad report among the people of Israel. And they say, well, it is a good land, but there's some huge people there. And we just, it's just impossible for us to take this land. We're not going to be able to do it. Moses is leading us to a suicide mission. It would be better for us to be in Egypt. And so there's two good spies, Joshua and Caleb, who say, no, 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 no. Don't listen to them. God is going to do this for us. He's going to deliver the people. He's going to deliver this land into our hands. Don't listen to them. But in spite of that, in verse 32, in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God. So you didn't believe that he was actually good enough to give you this land, that he was powerful enough. And so God was angry with them and he judged them and actually said, right, well, that's it you're not going into this land. Go back to the way of the wilderness. Go back into the wilderness because you've sinned before me. And so, uh, I'm not going to lead you into this promised land now. And then the people feeling sorry for themselves, try and fix their problem. Kind of like we do when we're in trouble, we fail to wait and we just try and fix what's happening. And so they then, uh, At first, they disobeyed God's commands to go in and take the land. They didn't take the land. Now God is saying, don't take the land. And they say, okay, we'll try and take the land. We'll try and go in. And it doesn't work for them. And Moses Moses is saying to them, don't do it. God's not with you. Don't take the land. But they try and go in. The people overrun them. They get uh, massacred in battle. They have to run away in shame. And then they weep before the Lord, and that takes us to the end of verse forty-six. So that's that's the story of Israel, of what has happened, and that's the passage that we're looking at today. And so what I want to look at is these two ideas of the danger of doubt and self-centered presumption. So the danger of doubt is mostly from verses twenty-six to thirty-three, where the people, um, the bad report goes among the people, and they start doubting that God can actually give them. Uh, the land. So verse 28, they say the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. And besides, we've seen the sons of the Anakim there. And so even though Moses tries to reassure them and he reminds them like, Hey guys, God has done. Have you not just seen what God has done this whole time? I mean, he, he parted the sea. He brought huge plagues upon Egypt. He rained down bread from heaven He has provided for you every single step of this way. Why Why are you doubting him now? So though they have seen God's hand of provision time and time again, this debilitating doubt creeps in. So where does this doubt come from? Where might you see this doubt in your life? I think this kind of doubt quite simply creeps in when we take our eyes off of Christ when we simply take our eyes off of Jesus and inevitably our eyes become fixated on something else. We don't just look at nothing. There will always be something that we look to. Notice the difference between Moses's perspective and the people of Israel. So in verse 29, it says, do not be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you've seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. So Moses is saying, don't you realize? Don't be in dread of these people. But look at God. Look at this God who has brought you this far and will bring you in. What are you looking to? And in Numbers 14, in the original version of what Moses is retelling, in Numbers 14, Caleb, who was one of the good spies, he also displays the difference of this perspective. He's saying, hey, if the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us. Sounds a lot like Paul's words in Romans eight thirty one. If God is for us, who can be against us? What's going to happen? It's a a win-win situation for us if we only just keep our eyes on our God. Doubt creeps in when we have taken our eyes off of Christ and they inevitably become fixed upon something else. Remember the story of Peter walking on the water when he sees Jesus walking on the water and Peter says, Lord, command me to walk. And he starts walking on the water. And he's actually literally walking on water. And then what does the passage say? It says, and he saw the storms. So he took his eyes off of Jesus. He saw the storms and he started to sink. And fixing our eyes upon the storms and distractions of life will sink us. They will sink us deeper and deeper into doubt. And this is what happened to the people of Israel. They had taken their eyes off of their God. They had looked to the storms. They had looked to the people, to the fortified cities, and it sank them. It sank them into doubt. And notice what this kind of doubt does to what we believe about God's character. Look at verse 27. The people say, Because the Lord has hated us, he has brought us out of Egypt. So this is the total opposite of what has happened. They're saying, oh, God is doing this because he hates us. He hates us. And he's just wanting to, in spite of us, uh, just cause us more destruction. This is the total opposite. In love, God delivers his people from slavery and oppression, and he wants to settle them in this land if only they would trust in him. But the danger of doubt is that it puts us in a vulnerable position which allows false ideas of God's character to creep in. I wonder if you've ever thought that. If you've ever had those weird feelings of maybe God actually wants to harm me, maybe God doesn't have a good will towards me. You know, it's kind of the same as the serpent in the garden. Did God really say that? And He actually tried to manipulate. Adam and Eve, and he did manipulate them and said, Oh, God, actually, he just doesn't want you to eat the fruit because then you'll become like God and then you'll know everything. And so Satan is actually causing Adam and Eve to believe that God has ulterior motives, that he's deceptive. And that's what doubt does to us. We start believing that God has ulterior motives, that he's not a loving father. And this doubt comes in because we are looking to something else for our meaning and our satisfaction. So I wonder what it is that you are looking at, what it is that you are looking to. Remember how we might say one thing, we probably know the Christian answer, Sunday school answer, Jesus always right. And so we probably know what to say, but our actions... What actually happens experientially in our lives might demonstrate something different. So where do you go to in difficult times? Is it to prayer? Or is it to just binging on something as a distraction? Where do you go? What are you looking to? Or perhaps it is the case. And when you are going through something difficult, you do turn to prayer. But maybe that's the only time. Maybe God is more like a cosmic genie that you bring out when you need him. And the rest of the time if you're doing okay god can just stay in the closet bring him out when you need and so what what are you looking to and is it feeding doubt or faith is what you are looking to feeding doubt or faith now the beautiful thing about this is that we actually have a clear and concrete application in scripture i didn't have to Think of this, but actually the New Testament author, the, the author of Hebrews gives a clear and concrete application for how to defend ourselves against this doubt. In chapter three of Hebrews, the writer takes this exact example that we are looking at in Deuteronomy where the Israelites doubt doubt. And they don't enter into the promised land. He takes the example of the first generation of Israel that were not actually led into the promised land, that died off in the wilderness. And he says in chapter three of Hebrews, take care, brothers, lest there be any of lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So he's taking that example and saying, hey, these people did not enter into the promised land. They perished, man. They perished. Don't be like them. Not a good outcome. And so what's the the solution to that? Exhort one another. Encourage one another. And it actually says every day every day. And so the importance is to do this whenever and wherever possible. And this is why we can't simply gather just once a week for a few hours. Like we have to have a deeper, a deeper communion in the body. We have to have something deeper than just a few hours on a Sunday. Or as this passage says, you will be in great danger of an evil, unbelieving heart that causes you to fall away from the living God. So there's a great irony in saying to people, be present when the people that i wanna say aren't here. But still, it's something that we can take. We need to remind ourselves of this, be present in our gatherings, like we as this community, we actually wanna be a community. This isn't an event that, that we just rock up to for a few hours on a Sunday. That's a false type of fake Christianity. In order to exhort one another daily, we have to actually be involved in each other's lives. I mean, this is like life or death situation we're talking about. Don't fall away from the living God. Be present in each other's lives. Send a scripture to someone. I remember um, very early on in my walk, uh, I read this passage and I um, made a practice of every Friday, I would send an encouraging message to someone in our church community. And um, I did that for like probably a year or so. And I didn't have to make anything up, like don't do the whole weird, like you know, they can clearly tell you're making something up, it was awkward for everyone. If you're actually involved in community, you shouldn't have to make anything up. Like it should be easy to say, hey, I'm thankful that you, James, always get here early and you've done all these signs for us, this graphic design. You're always there with a smile on your face as I'm preaching. It's a great encouragement to me, brother. Like it shouldn't, it shouldn't actually be difficult to come up with those uh, ways to encourage people. And that is actually what we're called to do. Exhort one another daily. Encourage one another. Hey, I've seen you growing in the Lord. I've seen God's grace in your life. I've seen the way you've hoped in him when you've been in a difficult situation. I've seen that. I'm so encouraged by it. Keep going. It's these practices which will keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus and therefore keep us from falling away into the danger of doubt, which just leads us further astray. So that's our first warning. The second is the self-centeredness of presumption, which is more the last section of this passage in verses 41 to 46. And this is where we read of what the Israelites did after they had received God's judgment for their rebellion. So they take matters into their own hands. And there's just like, it's comical when uh, God tells them to go in and take possession. They don't do it. And then when God says, don't do it, they do it just like a stubborn child. And this is the picture of the self-centeredness of presumption, which is probably present in our lives more than we want. See, the reason, the reason this is self-centered presumption is because the reason they didn't want to obey God's command to take the land the first place was because they believed it would be harmful for them. They said, these guys are way bigger than us. I'm not throwing myself in that situation. No way. Who cares about God's plan for this people? I'd rather preserve myself. And then the reason they then wanted to go into the land was because they had been rebuked by their God. They felt bad, and so they wanted to fix it so they would no longer feel under God's judgment. So they wanted to go in and fix it. It's a very self-centered situation approach, and this self-centeredness led to the sin of presumption, presuming that you know what's best, because in your mind, well, you're always right. That's what they were doing. Moses specifically tells them in verses 42 and 43, don't go up to fight, because God is not with you. Don't do it. And they do it. They blatantly ignore that command. And in a very presumptuous way, they go into the land. And this self-centeredness is the water we swim in in this culture. It's the the water we swim in. It's a particular arrogance that places oneself above God. That's the, the modern self. There's a relativistic individualism that basically says, whatever you feel and think internally is right. You are the arbiter of right and wrong, and if something externally or someone externally doesn't align with that, then it's nothing to do with you internally, it's it's your environment, it's that community group, or that religious group, that's what's wrong. Uh, Carl Truman has this book out now called The, the Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, and a key statement that's present in our society that actually um, caused him to research this topic was how the statement "I'm a woman trapped in a man's body" could actually make sense, and because he's a church historian, so he knows, you know, obviously what was going on in in history, and um, he just thought, "Wow, how that's a that's a um, common statement now, and so how can that make sense?" when you know even 80 or 90 years ago if if that was happening and someone said I'm a a woman trapped in a man's body well a doctor would then come and say all right well well there's um, something not quite aligned with your feelings or your psyche and then the reality of your physical body and so we need to um, we need to make sure that your feelings and uh, your psyche actually align with the physical reality whereas now what a doctor would say is, right, well, there's something wrong with your physical body and we need to change your physical body to make it align with your feelings. And that's just the culture that we're in. And this is, of course, not to use transgenderism as um, you know, the worst of the worst for this. It's actually, we see it the same way in a man identifying as a man in a heterosexual marriage who commits adultery because he feels that that's right. I just want to explore my sexual desires, and really, I shouldn't have to oppress that, and so there's many other ways that that's actually used. We see it all in this society where feelings are elevated above truth, and so that person committing adultery really doesn't care about the sanctity of marriage. That's the environment. That's that's what's wrong. I should follow my feelings because myself, I am really the arbiter of what's right and wrong. And that's the water we swim in today. Our society conditions us to think that what we feel is always right. So, of course, we're naturally going to struggle with the submission required to follow Christ. We're naturally going to struggle with taking up our cross and following him. And this is one of the greatest threats to Christian discipleship because... As I said, it is the water we swim in, this self-centeredness that leads to presumption. And there's one of many examples where I think we see this in the modern church. I think we see this primarily in our resistance to obedience and cost, the cost of Christian discipleship. See, because our worldview is so self-centered, the idea of giving more time and more resources to a church community is really not appealing unless we're gonna get a nice return out of it, unless we're gonna get something. So we'll give our Sunday mornings, but that's about it. Perhaps a midweek small group, but the church, which is Christ's body, is really worth you know about 5% of my time. And I've got other important things to do. And we, as the modern church, have catered to this. We've catered to this modern self-centered mind where we market our services we market the church we commodify it and we present the church like something that we're trying to appeal to their consumer needs and so that's why we we uh, have delicious coffee for people to come, free coffee. We have welcome packs with neat gifts to give. We have small groups that we will cater to your needs and your lifestyle. We'll make it close to where you live. There'll be other people just like you. And so we market the church because we've, we've catered to this worldview, which is totally opposed to the cost of discipleship. And so how do we then protect ourselves against this self-centered presumption? How do we protect ourselves against this when it is the water we swim in? It's what our society is all about. And I believe the key thing is that we have to recover the fear of the Lord in our community. We have to recover the fear of the Lord. Notice that the Israelites' problem was really what they feared. They feared men. They saw the size of the men and they feared them above fearing their God. Moses is the one saying, don't be afraid of them. The Lord is the one you should be afraid of. And he's for you. He's so much more powerful than all of them. And he's the God who is going to deliver this land and this people into your hands. If you don't fear the Lord, you will fear men. That's just the reality And in order to rid ourselves of the fear of man, we have to recover fear of the Lord. That's what we have to recover in our community. So look at verses 34 to 40. This is where God pronounces judgment upon the people uh, when they rebelled against entering into the promised land. And in this section, I mean, it's pretty um, confronting if we actually think about it. God is is pronouncing quite a... uh, Um, seemingly harsh judgment upon them because it's going to result in all of them the ones who rebelled perishing in the wilderness and as we went through last week this promised land is also symbolic of this final rest that we have in christ and so that's quite a judgment to say right you're all going to die in the wilderness you're not going to enter into the promised land you're not going to enter into this and in numbers 14 which again is the original account God actually immediately says to Moses, right, Moses, that's it. I'm going to disinherit this people. You and me, Moses, we're going to go off, but as I'm done with them, they're gone. And Moses intercedes for the people as a Christ-like figure. He intercedes for them. But God still, in Numbers 14, he goes on to say, as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, None of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these 10 times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land I swore to give to their fathers. None of them will see it. So he's saying they will never enter into my rest. And if we follow the story of the Israelites through Numbers, just a few chapters later in Numbers 16, they still don't learn Because the Korahites, who were a a priestly group, um, they rebel. And we see their arrogance again when they oppose Moses. And this group come to Moses and say, hey, why are you asserting your authority over us? And that sounds kind of familiar to our anti-authoritarian culture. So they don't like Moses asserting his authority. And they say, we should have a share of that as well. What's going on? And you think, well, that's kind of fair enough. Like Moses already seems kind of like burdened and he wants other people. But actually God doesn't say that. God comes <laughs> and, and it's, this is a, a very um, confronting passage to read because he actually says, right, all of you, Moses, Aaron, separate yourselves from them. I'm about to consume them in a moment. I'm about to kill them and destroy them. And then you know what happens? Moses then says to all the Korites, "Right, you, um, we're going to bring this before the Lord. Come here, um, all 250 of you. Come before the Lord, and we'll settle this." And when they do, God again says to them, "Right, you get away, everyone, get away from the Korites." And then the earth opens up and swallows them, and they die, and they perish. They had tried to assert themselves over God's chosen leader for that time therefore trying to assert themselves saying God I know better than you we should be in this position and God's wrath came against them and most of the time we in our society like to remain ignorant of this it's better to just leave that side of God away and for those of you playing at home, that's a little heresy we like to call Marcionism, which is where the God of the Old Testament was believed to be different from the God of the New Testament. And it's kind of the same idea where we don't like to think of Jesus or God as this kind of wrathful God. Now, we know that for those in Christ, we know that for we in Christ, God's wrath is completely satisfied. It's compl- there's none. None left over for us in Christ because we are clothed in Christ. It is only his goodwill, his love and affection toward us. But here's the thing. God's love does not dissolve him of his burning holiness. It does not reduce his burning holiness in any way. So he remains our Holy Father who will discipline us and who demands obedience. And it is simply because we have falsely elevated ourselves to a position where we treat God's holiness lightly. that We fail to understand this. And it is only because he is overwhelmingly gracious and so, so patient that He does not more often rebuke us and that He does not just destroy this earth, this wicked earth full of people like you and me who rebel and who ignore God, who are in apathy, who do not care about Him. Can you imagine why He doesn't just destroy the earth? But He is so patient, so overwhelmingly merciful and gracious. And so we like to... We like to block out this aspect of God's character, which is his wrath, his holiness against sin, against self-centeredness. A.W. Tozer, who was a theologian uh, almost 100 years ago, he writes um, this about this very topic. He says, Christians today, and he's talking about um, Christians in like the 1940s, 1950s. So it is only escalated since then. He says, Christians today appear to know Christ only after the flesh. They try to achieve communion with him by divesting him of his burning holiness and unapproachable majesty, the very attributes he veiled while on earth, but assumed in fullness of glory upon his ascension to the Father's right hand. The Christ of popular Christianity has a weak smile and a halo. He has become someone up there who likes people, at least some people. And these are grateful, but not too impressed. So he's saying the Christ of popular Christianity just kind of like has this weak smile and a halo who kind of like loves everyone and allows people to tread all over him. Do whatever you want. You'll be okay with me. And that's not the Christ of the Bible. The same Jesus who welcomes repentant sinners in his arms with a loving embrace with such mercy is the same Jesus who is returning on a white horse with a robe dipped in blood, with a sword out of his mouth ready to strike down the nations. The same God who is returning where people who have not been atoned for will cry for mountains to crush them lest they stare one moment longer at this God. That is Jesus, the same Jesus. Meek and mild Jesus is the God of wrath who will bring judgment. And this this kind of fear of God must be present to prevent us from self-centeredness. It has to remain in us. Yes, we are um, overwhelmingly glad to realize His his sheer mercy toward us and that there is just um, an inconceivable amount of love and goodwill toward us. We can bask in His goodness, but it doesn't dissolve Him of His holiness and of His wrath. And in this self-centered culture, we have to then take that, take the fear of the Lord to make us realize that we live in a God-centered universe. And so we have to have a God-centered worldview, which is to say we have to have the fear of this holy God present in our lives and in this community. So the questions that I started with, do you believe that God is as good as he says he is? Do you believe that God is as holy as he says he is? Does your life show a desire to exhort others and to live in both the joy and the fear of the Lord? Is there evidence of that in your life? Or does your life show more of a a doubt and self-centered presumption that we see in the Israelites?